you might want to grab that tree and hold on because we're spending the entire show talking about Travis Walton on this episode of UFO Mod Pod. Hello, friends, and welcome to UFO Mod Pod. I'm Jason McClellan. I'm Ryan Sprague. And I'm Maureen Ellsbury. Thank you so much for joining us for yet another episode of UFO Mod Pod. The interview we have for you later in the show today is great, and it's also pretty lengthy. So we're skipping the UFO headlines today and moving right into our historical case. In our effort to provide a modern introduction to the UFO phenomenon for a new generation, on each episode of UFO Mod Pod, we highlight a historical UFO case. And because our interview today deals directly with it, we're highlighting the Travis Walton incident of 1975. Here's a summary of the incident. On November 5, 1975, Travis was part of a seven-man crew working in Arizona's Apache Sitgraves National Forest. These guys are routinely referred to as loggers, but they were contracted to perform tree thinning services. After working all day, the crew piled into boss Mike Rogers' truck and started the journey home. During the trip, Travis noticed a light through the trees. At first, he assumed it was the sun, but then he remembered that the sun had already set like 30 minutes prior. Others in the truck saw the light too. They couldn't make out much through the trees, but they knew it was unusual. Mike sped up so they could get a better view of the weird light. They reached a clearing in the trees. To their amazement, there it was, a flying saucer. One of the passengers yelled for Mike to stop the truck. He complied, skidding to a halt. He shut off the engine, and they just sat there in disbelief, staring at a golden disc with clearly defined edges silently hovering 20 feet off the ground. Knowing that this was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, Travis, for whatever reason, jumped out of the truck and moved toward the UFO. Naturally, this freaked out the other guys in the truck. They yelled at Travis to get back in, but Travis continued to get closer to the craft. Suddenly, he heard what sounded like the ignition of generators, and the UFO started to wobble. Then a blue-green ray of light shot from the bottom of the craft, striking Travis, launching him 10 feet in the air, and then left him unconscious. The guys in the truck were beyond freaked out at this point. They panicked. Mike started the truck. And they got out of there as fast as they could. Later, they came to their senses and returned to the scene to look for Travis, but they couldn't find him. They reported Travis missing to the authorities. Law enforcement officials quickly grew suspicious, though, and suspected the crew was covering up an accident or perhaps even the murder of Travis. Treated like suspects, the crew was given polygraph exams, but the results of these exams convinced the sheriff that these men were being truthful with their UFO story. Five days after the incident in the woods, Travis returned. He found himself stomach down in the middle of the road in Heber, Arizona. He ran down the highway until he found a payphone, and he called his sister. His brother-in-law answered the phone, and his brother-in-law and his brother came and picked him up. He was hysterical, unshaven, and unaware that he'd been gone for five days. Travis described that he was aboard what appeared to be a ship in space, and he encountered big-eyed aliens and what appeared to even be humans. This incident made international headlines at the time, and it's perhaps the most well-known case of alleged alien abduction, partially due to the Hollywood movie Fire in the Sky, which is based on the book Fire in the Sky, The Walton Experience, Travis's account of this incredible encounter. Yeah, um, this is a big case. And there's a lot of disputes that surround this incredible encounter as well. Um, I can speak for myself and, and and both you guys that we've known Travis personally for years. Mm-hmm. And the case becomes a little more mysterious when you know this guy. Because there's something about him. A, the guy hasn't aged <laughs> in years. <laughs> that is very true. Very it, true. It is true. Um, but he also has a persona about him that gives him another level of, of credibility that something strange happened to this guy. And, and there's a lot of other factors that have come to light since this case originally sort of flooded the internet and the newspapers back when there was no internet. And um, people began 
to learn about this from the movie. A, obviously the movie has parts that are fictionalized and Travis will be the first to, to tell you that. Um, but I think that one of the most fascinating things about this case is there's some physical evidence that's come to light uh, over the last 15 years regarding the surrounding area. Have either of you guys been to the spot? No, I, I personally haven't. I, I know you have, and I'm very yeah. jealous about that. Yeah, so um, around the area, there has been um, multiple tree samples taken now, and um, they discovered that the tree fibers or the growth of the tree was accelerated um, extensively around the time that the UFO um, was seen in the area. And then later, uh, it was discovered, too, that it wasn't the whole trees that were seeing this. It was just the side that the UFO was on. So it seems like something strange happened, some sort of, I don't know, acceleration, radiation to these trees. And and it's not the first time that this has been reported in UFO cases. So it's very interesting to think, well, what if, if this was a hoax, what caused that growth acceleration? Mm-hmm. Yeah, agree, Maureen. I mean, we we have this happen in the Rendlesham case as well, where this supposed landing sites had um, very abnormal growth in the forest where that event took place as well. So definitely some compelling evidence. And uh, they do talk about it in the interview. We did uh, the directors of the documentary, Travis, the true story of Travis Walton. But yeah, you're right. Um, This evidence seems to continue (laughs) to bring more credibility to the case. And when you look at this, I mean, this started as a missing persons case. It turned into a possible possible homicide and then a UFO encounter. So it's no wonder it went international, as it mm-hmm. were. And um, again, when you, when you hear these men, the witnesses talk and you hear Travis talk, uh, they're just so sincere in what they're saying and that this actually happened and travis you know you gotta give the guy some credit he never had a choice in this story coming forward you know um most people have a choice if they want to come forward with a quote-unquote ufo experience um this guy sort of was forced into this uh persona and this this sort of uh whatever responsibility he feels to get the information out there when in reality who knows if he ever really wanted to so And you bring up a great thing about this case, Ryan. One of the most incredible things is to hear these men who were a part of this mass sighting discuss it. To this Mm -hmm. day, you can tell that they are still affected by whatever happened. They're they're quite emotional, some of them even more than others, but they're still emotionally and personally affected by whatever it was that happened all those Mm -hmm. years ago. These are just regular guys. You know, they're not, I don't know. They're, they're just, they're, they're manly men. <laughs> they're just men they're of the blue earth. Collar. They're, yeah. they're very blue collar, woodsy guys, very personable, not the type of people that you get the sense that they're, that they would fake something like this and then keep it up for, for decades and be able to pull off the, the emotion that they present when, when discussing this. And it's not like all of these people or even a few of these people were very vocal about this case, wanting to talk about it, wanting attention, wanting to be interviewed about it. Quite mm-hmm. the opposite. They they wanted nothing to do with it because of all the negative attention they were receiving and, and accusations of being murderers and people not trusting them in their hometowns. I mean, it, it's taken a lot over the years to get these people, all of these people, to come forward and talk about this case so many years later. Like I said, they're still affected by it. That's a powerful piece of evidence. You know, uh, witness testimony is not really that great. But in this case, when you can see that so many years later, the effects on these people personally are still there, it's it's pretty powerful to see for yourself. And, and I think it is important. Um, you know, we have talked about how you can just get the vibe from these guys that something crazy happened. But I think it is important that we address sort of the skeptical side of this that um, Mm -hmm. is very fluent on the internet. And especially because um, for people who haven't uh, heard about this case or just saw the movie, 
Um, if you're going to research it, you're going to find a lot of accusations um, against the, their story, including that they were just trying to get out of this monumentous contract they had um, and they couldn't complete the work and they, you know, sort of went into this um, fake lie to get out of this government contract because they were in fear of bankruptcy and, and other things. And I think uh, there's also people from Snowflake that have accused the whole thing of being a hoax that Travis was just way drunk uh, or on drugs for five days and um, this whole thing was a lie and then they kept having to lie because of you know situations um, you know let's say it comes out now that it was all a hoax they'd be in trouble you know so there are those accusations but then there's a lot of evidence to go against that side as well um, mm -hmm. and I will bring up the lie detector tests um, there have been mostly passed, there has been a couple lie detector tests that were failed. And I just want to point out one because I've seen a lot of people talk about it. It was the To Tell the Truth game show. Mm -hmm. And Travis mm -hmm. went on and the final question, I believe, was, I think it was, were you abducted by aliens? And he said, yes, but it came up saying he was lying. And some uh, proponents of the case believe that occurred because Travis has had a shift in what he believes happened to him at that point. Um, if you talk to Travis, he will say, you know, originally he sort of thought that something bad was going on, but now he believes he was more on an ambulance ride that <laughs> he had become injured when they, you know, he got thrown in the air and that they were just trying to fix him. Um, so whether that's, you know, really abduction or, you know, quickly getting picked up, oh, crap, we broke this guy. We got to fix him and put him <laughs> back. You know, it, it's it's interesting. But but like I said, there is something to when you meet these guys that you can't help but think there just may be some truth to all of this. And, and a great thing about Travis and this story, unlike other um, stories of alien encounters or abductions, is that Travis doesn't have all the answers and doesn't pretend to have the answers. He doesn't tell right. you 100% definitive, you know, these were aliens and this is what their agenda was. And no, he doesn't even know for sure that they were aliens. He just describes these weird looking things with big eyes and, and doesn't know why it happened or, you know, what their intentions were or, or from where they hailed the planet they're from. You know, that, that frustrates me so much with some people that they have every single detail about the origins of whoever they talk to and, and their entire backstory and the, the details and dimensions of the craft and the technology and the intentions of these people and how long they've interacted with humans. Not with Travis. Travis yeah. knows what happened to him as much as he knows, you know, what he can recall. That's what he talks about. Does this happen to me? I don't know what it means. I don't know who they were. Well, it's what they because that, it's because the aliens didn't communicate with them. So how was he supposed to know that they were from planet number nine? <laughs> planet nine. That's a good point, though, Maureen. Like, there was no communication directly with these, you know, entities that he claims to have been in contact with. Um, and so, not, not for lack of trying. <laughs> exactly. Oh, he kept yeah. trying I mean, to say, oh, he, come on, tell me, what, what are you doing? What is going on? Yeah. You know, Stop poking me. Yeah. yeah, exactly. He even tried to nail one of them, I think, <laughs> with a right hook. So. Yeah. Yeah, but I, I agree, guys. I mean, we, between the three of us, we've met a lot of experiencers or abductees or contactees. Um, and you always sort of – you're always on guard when you hear these stories. But um, like you said, Maureen, the three of us have personally met Travis. We've talked to him at length, and there is definitely something special about this guy. And – Beyond this incident, um, you know, it's just he's a guy who doesn't want his entire life to be identified by this single event. Um, there's so much more to him. And I think that's what what we have to keep in mind, that uh, this guy had something extraordinary happen to him. He's trying to find answers, but life sort of goes on. So. Yeah, something yeah. something happened and uh, it affected this entire group of men. 
what exactly that was, we don't really know, but uh, it seems that something genuinely did happen. And that's what makes this case fascinating. Yeah, just keep an open mind and look fairly at both sides, I guess. Yeah, for sure. Exactly, exactly. Well, Ryan recently attended the Philip K. Dick Science Fiction Film Festival in New York, where he watched a screening of a documentary titled Travis, The True Story of Travis Walton. Great documentary and uh, done by our our friend, uh, a couple of our friends, well, a few of our friends. A lot of people were behind this movie. And uh, the day after you watched this movie, Ryan, you met up with a couple people behind this film. And that is our interview for today. So let's listen. Hey, guys, Ryan Sprague here from UFO Mod Pod. And today I'm on location in New York City. Last night, I had the opportunity to attend a screening of the documentary Travis, the true story of Travis Walton. The documentary follows the famous Travis Walton UFO incident, interviewing many members directly involved, including first-hand witnesses, law enforcement, polygraph experts, journalists, and the man himself, Travis Walton. The documentary was part of the Philip K. Dick Science Fiction Film Festival, which we'll discuss a little later for sure. And we are recording this interview the morning after the screening, because there was cause to celebrate last night with today's guests. We have the executive producer and director of the film, Jennifer Stein, and joining Jennifer is author, researcher, and associate producer, Peter Robbins. So guys, why are we celebrating? Uh, We won the best UFO, or actually the best documentary, or the best science fiction feature film Mm -hmm. of the festival. (laughs) And... uh, we're scratching our heads <laughs> and delighted. Yeah. Well, congratulations. Very exciting news. Thanks for joining us today. Glad to. Um, so, Jennifer, I guess we'll start with you. What made you want to make this film? Well, I felt that Travis's story really needed to be remembered and understood, certainly by younger generations who don't seem to pick up books anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're becoming a thing of the past. And if anyone really wants a perspective on... Um, one of the top 10 best, you know, documented UFO stories, Travis's story is amazing. Uh, There's a lot of evidence to it, a lot of people involved in the case. It's not one of those stories that could easily be buried and shoved under the rug. There's polygraph involved in it. It made international news because it was a homicide story, a missing person story, and a UFO story. The story was heavily attacked and debunked. These guys' lives were destroyed by this. There was a huge story there. And after I read his book, and Peter introduced me to Travis in 2010, um, I just felt like if I could produce something like that, it would be amazing. And I wasn't even sure I could do it. I I didn't actually even start out to make a documentary. And that's another story. (laughs) But um, I just felt like if it could happen, it would be a great coup for Travis and for myself as a filmmaker if I could do a decent job I would have had made a contribution to maybe shifting the awareness or the consciousness of the planet to remember and be aware of Travis's story mm-hmm. and that's uh, that's why I put the time and effort and money into it. Had you ever done a documentary before? Yes okay. I've done a couple. I started documentary filmmaking um, around maybe the late uh, 80s early 90s A friend of mine was killed in a terrorist bus attack, and I was motivated to her memory and to raising awareness about the beginning of the Antifada and actually the very good relationship that Arabs and Jews had in Israel, because a lot of people think it's bad, but in actuality, for thousands of years, Mm -hmm. they've lived very peacefully and collaboratively with one another. And my friend had gone to Israel and was caught in a terrorist bus attack. And she'd made the nightly news because she survived the initial attack and then died later. So I made a documentary about her, used the documentary to raise about $100,000, and we built a legal aid bureau in central Israel, in Carmel, Israel, that helps both Druze, Arabs, Muslims, women seeking political asylum. It was a women's organization that we we funneled the money through. Mm -hmm. And... um, that was my first documentary film. So I'm a purpose-driven filmmaker, yeah. and I'm a, a social activist, and I think that we need to all kind of pull up our bootstraps and do what we can to heal the world. I mean, it's a Jewish theme, tikkun olam. What do you do to make your life matter? Mm-hmm. And what impacts you in your life that you want to 
remember and try to change. So I wanted to do something that was non-retaliatory in nature, and honoring my friend Rita Levine was the best thing I could do. So that was my first film, and I really got my boots wet. Um, I literally did it with a video camera and a VHR with a jog shuttle, where you could lay a soundtrack and then an audio track, and that was it. Yeah. So you had to lay stuff, wind back your jog shuttle, lay more stuff, wind back your jog shuttle. Lay, oh my lay gosh! More stuff. I can't imagine how long. That <clears throat> and that's how I started. Awesome! Wow. Well, that's fascinating. Like the dichotomy of your subject matter in yes. your documentaries, but it all seems to somehow be connected and moving yes. the the world forward. Yes. The consciousness, the collective consciousness, it's consciousness and awareness. Mm-hmm. Um, so how did this man get involved over here to my right, Mr. Peter Robbins? Well, I'll tell you, Peter is the one that uh, introduced me to Travis. I uh, came to a Roswell UFO conference that Peter was uh, helping to orchestrate and uh, offered to be Peter's assistant and help. I wanted to kind of get my feet wet and understanding how the Roswell conference worked because I'd run a lot of UFO conferences myself in Philly. And Peter was kind enough to say, oh, gosh, yes, come and you can help. So I was there that year with uh, Jesse Marcel Jr., assisting him and helping, and that's where I met Travis, and that's where we had the conversation about Travis hosting his own conference, possibly in Heber at some time in the future, because at that point it was 35 years after his event. And we said to Travis, Roswell is a huge economic boom to the city of Roswell. Your conference and your story could be just as important for northeastern Arizona. Why don't you put a conference together? He said, well, I've been thinking about it. And Peter and I sort of self-volunteered ourselves over a bottle of wine. I don't think we knew what we were getting into, but we volunteered to help him. And we started then working towards the 40th anniversary and trying to have conferences building up to that. And uh, the rest is kind of history. That's how I started making this film. I said to Travis, if you want to do it in November in northeastern Arizona, and one of the main things Travis wanted to do at a conferences take people to the actual forest where the event took place but in november it could be snowing it could be raining the road to get up there is a switchback and and it's steep and you need a four-wheel drive vehicle you can't necessarily get a bus in there in november (laughs) what if it snows so um you know i'm a former event planner so i said you always have to have a plan b so what will be our plan b it's natural Let's go there in the summer when we know we can get there. Let's shoot. Let's get the guys back in the forest. Let's do a virtual filmed, you know, tour of the site. And in the event that it snows, we have a backup. Right. You get all everybody that shows up, put them in a conference room, show a film mm-hmm. of a tour of the site. So that's what I did first. Okay. The summer of 2013, I flew out there with a co-producer of mine named Bob Terrio who was willing to really help me get this project underway because I was like going, oh my gosh, how can I do this? It's a huge nightmare to pack your camera equipment, everything you need, fly to Arizona, then drive three hours north, then schlep all this equipment up to the forest, hike it in a mile, carrying tripods and mics and all this stuff. And he helped me. And after we got that virtual tour done, which is called Tracking Sky Fire, and it's something that Travis has for sale and also Bob Terrio in Philadelphia has for sale, it's a virtual tour of the forest. After we looked at that and we finished that in time for a conference that we'd hoped had would have happened, the 38th conference, um, we've I realized, you know, with a little more work, I'm halfway to a really decent documentary. Why don't I take that virtual tour, shoot some interviews, try to get a few more interviews with the polygraph person and try to find the police chief and whoever else I can find from the town. Maybe make another trip back out there and see what I can do. And the other unique thing is, since I'm involved in MUFON, Mm -hmm. I happen to be organizing the National Symposium for the Mutual UFO Network in Philadelphia and Cherry Hill in the summer of 2014. And we were bringing in, you know, Lee Spiegel and Stanton Friedman and Kathy Martin and um, George Knapp. We had all these wonderful speakers. We even had James Fox. And I said, wow, if I, I'll take over a hotel room 
set it up like a studio. I'll shoot all these interviews, and then I'll have these core interviews. Then I'll get a couple more, and then I'll edit my my tushy off, right, (laughs) and try to create uh, a new film. And that's what I did. So actively, I started working on this documentary, reshaping it in um, probably around August of mm-hmm. 2014. And like, it's unheard of to do a, f- to edit like this. And I had a lot of help. I had some great guys in California that helped me, Zachary Weil and Adam Stein, who uh, took my four hour film in mm-hmm. October and pulled it tightly together in time for the Open Minds uh, Film Festival. Right, which you also which we won, won. both award categories, which right. I was really honored by. Congratulations again! It seems to be a running theme. <laughs> I'm I'm very happy. Um, yeah. You know, when you look at the internet um, and you look at what people really want to know about, the UFO topic is still one of the most highly researched topics yeah. next to porn. <laughs> you know, so I don't know if that puts it in a good light or a bad light, but it's, it's been that way since the birth of the internet. Yes, it, it's it the people are most curious about who are we, where are we, where did we come from, what's the nature of reality, and sex, and sex. You know, I mean, of course, I mean these are the the core questions. They are, and it doesn't matter what nationality you are, what religion you are. Um, these these are the the human conditions that we need to really wrestle with. We right. need to understand our nature. Right. Um, that's great. So I want to get a little back to uh, the film itself yes. um, that I viewed last night and I had the privilege of seeing at the Congress as well last year. Um, you mentioned earlier you had spoken to the sheriff, um, Gillespie? Yes, Marlon. Yes. Marlon Gillespie. Um, chief investigator during the investigation. Um, what was it like hearing his side of the story face-to-face? Mm. When I was interviewing Marlon, he was still very skeptical, very much on the edge of his seat, and very cautious with his words. Okay. He never wanted to admit that he believed that this had happened. He said, I believe they were trying to tell the truth. Yeah. He never said, I believe they told the truth. <laughs> so I was amazed that still, after 40 years, he was really on the fence about mm-hmm. everything. But when we turned the cameras off, he told us his own UFO story. Really? Which was amazing. I mean, he's had more than one. Okay. And in fact, he had had some events prior to the Travis Walton incident. So he didn't discount the boys and he didn't disrespect them because he'd seen enough odd stuff himself. Yeah. At the same time, as a law enforcement officer in a business where uh, there's a lot of macho bantering and posturing, the ridicule factors amped up tenfold. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, he knew that this could be real. Yeah. So when you see the film, the Hollywood film, I think one of the things that works best about Fire in the Sky is the human dynamic. Mm-hmm. You know, forget about the special effects and the alien uh, experience. Uh, the late, great James Garner um, uh, playing the sheriff was wonderful. And the actors playing the uh, the deputies, what they were wrestling with, um, we can only imagine in terms of, you know, we're, we're free to think it's not like uh, we work in law enforcement or the military or whatever and would have problems expressing opinions in a public forum. Uh, when I saw the footage, um, I was dumbstruck with that as a backstory. Um, it makes perfect sense knowing what we do and that these things do happen and Arizona has a fairly high ratio of uh, authentic, truly anomalous UFO situations over the decades. But for me, that was one of the the really most quietly exciting parts of the documentary. And you just said it, he's in his 80s now, and yet you could almost smell the wood burning in terms of him choosing what for him would be the right word rather than the almost right word to sound objective, to sound open-minded, but to still protect himself of course, within his greater community in the way that he is perceived as seeing the world. Mm-hmm. And there's another important point to remember, and a lot of people seem to forget this. It, it's well mentioned in the film, but not we don't beat you over the head with it. This is a Mormon town. Right. They're, right. Most everybody in the town is Mormon. They're very conservative. And we um, had 
uh, we went and visited the newspaper man who was 11 years old at the time when his dad was running the newspaper. <laughs> I think it's called the Holbrook Tribune. And when I went and looked at those articles, I photographed them all. There's over 40 articles, almost one a year. Or you know, There were certainly more during 1975 to 1995. But when you read those articles, you would think that this really didn't happen mm-hmm. because the newspaper was so conservative. And their approach was so conservative. Oh, everybody wanted to protect themselves, and nobody wanted to be ridiculed. And, of course, this story was heavily attacked um, by Philip Glass. Yes. We won't get started on Glass. Um, But piggybacking off of that, um, someone like Glass, who is a professional debunker, as it were, um, what we need is physical evidence. And... This case is the epitome of physical evidence when it comes to the abduction phenomenon. Um, you brought forth some of the most compelling evidence that I personally didn't know about. Uh, I think 90% of the people in the audience didn't know about. And I heard literal holy S-H-I-T's um, when you brought forward the, um, the, tree, the tree growth yeah. in the area. I mean, the guy next to me, like, almost so jumped out of his seat. Um, <clears throat> is there any other evidence that you'd steer skeptics towards in terms of this case that you found while making the documentary? Well, obviously, the, the polygraphs. Yes. You can't have uh, seven, eight, nine people take polygraphs and all pass and not have something very significant there. Mm-hmm. And, in fact... It's one thing to take a polygraph once, but to take them multiple times and pass, your numbers start to go exponentially off the charts. So if anyone wanted to look at that alone, it was huge. The other fact that there were probably roughly 250 to upwards of 500 people that looked for Travis. I've heard different people give different numbers, so Mm -hmm. that's why I give that kind of a range. People were looking for him for five days over a five-mile radius. There was helicopters. There were dogs sniffing, you know, hounds out there. Mm-hmm. And the only place they could find traces of Travis's scent was where he had been working that day, where he jumped out of the truck, where he walked up to the UFO, where there was a slash pile, and where he landed. Yeah. This dog's noses don't lie. (laughs) Um, There was a fellow who showed up unidentified who was doing Geiger counter readings. And he got huge Geiger counter readings on the fellow's helmets and on the truck. Now, they had washed their clothes. But where Travis had been struck, where Travis landed, and the truck and the helmets went off the charts. Once he got those readings, he packed up his equipment and took off and... Nobody really knew who he was. Mm -hmm. Um, Somebody said he was from the Forestry Service. Other people said, Mm -hmm. no, he was from the FBI. Naturally, yeah. (laughs) So we don't know. Um, To me, the other thing that's really interesting is there was an awful lot of men in black that seemed to show up and track and follow these guys in Heber. They were standing outside waiting for them. Who were these people? Well, like Steve Pierce was talking about, his mother observing the government cars, the guys in the suits who fit into uh, the snowflake scene um, like a fish and a bicycle. Um, <laughs> it also occurs to me that for some people who you watch something as compelling and as loaded and as effective as this documentary, if you have a problem with the subject, Um, and you're not quite at the point of turning and trying to attack the character of the witnesses, we, most of us know that in the great majority of states, polygraphs are dismissed in courts of law. They're interesting. They, They may add something. You know, people will often say, well, I know I'm innocent. I'm going to pay to have a polygraph just so that it's on record, et cetera. Um, Ben Hansen, who did such a wonderful job of, of uh, being a participant, uh, ben, of course, starred in his own television show a few years back on Sci-Fi. And he's not, you know, he's a fairly young guy. Um, a former he, FBI agent. Yeah, right? that's just it, yeah. who did profiling work. And right. I mean, you know, he's a great-looking guy, and he's up there and he's talking. I think it's lost on some people that this is a man who speaks with real credentials and 
interestingly, even if it's not admissible in a court of law, um, the statistics that they were talking about for me were as quietly uh, effective as the animation on tree growth or the close-up on the rings veering in the direction of the event <laughs> that the most conservative, and I'm sure it's an extremely conservative number, <clears throat> of the odds of six people, seven people being polygraphed one of them multiple times. And the way the example he gave me a few years ago was if there are two crooks and they plot a crime and they're caught um, and they're subjected to uh, a polygraph, the chances are very good that one of them will screw up the story that, right. and then certainly in a follow-up it will fall apart. But that figure of 78,000 to one, I've also heard um, closer to a million to one. Mm -hmm. Whatever it is, it's very compelling. Yeah. And um, when you're looking for ways to negate or dismiss or belittle, um, this will dog you. This is just one more brick in the wall, uh, and a very important one as well, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I also think that uh, when you look, I know we don't really want to get into Philip Class, but why was this story so adamantly attacked for 25, almost 30 years? Mm -hmm. Why did Philip keep trying to put it in the garbage? Where did that $10,000 bribe come up from? Exactly. When something's really true <laughs> and you need to bury it for whatever reason, if the government's trying, you know, has informants like this that try to bury things, um, they're going to go after the stuff that um, really doesn't have holes in it. Yeah. And Travis's story does not have holes in it. But you have to dig to, to know that. And the more you dig, the more you find. Right. I mean, even I uncovered stuff I didn't really know about when yeah. I started. Yeah, I mean, project. you've connected some dots in terms of Philip Class um, and his connections to some three-letter agencies. We, yes. we won't go into specifics. We'll let people see the film to see the, those fascinating connections you made with that. Um, but you're right. Yeah. I mean, 25 years, the contention with this case continues and continues. And again, the most challenging thing is that it has more physical evidence than any abduction case out there, um, perceivably, um, perhaps only the Betty and Barney Hill case being mm -hmm. the exception. Um, I, I wanted to touch on, um, uh, this is for you, Peter, um, the film was part of the Philip K. Dick Science Fiction Festival. Uh, you brought up a good point at the panel last night. Um, I didn't mention there was a panel after the screening uh, with Peter, yourself, and uh, Lee Spiegel of the Huffington Post. Um, you, were, you were interested, Peter, in the perception of a nonfiction documentary uh, being part of a science fiction festival. Could you elaborate on that and what that, what that meant to you? Yeah. Over the decades that I've been doing this work, and I, I know for both of you as well in your time, you become um, a focal point for views and stories and things that people will confide to you that they might not to the next person over because they know you take it seriously and you know your eyebrows won't go up and no wink, wink, nudge, nudge reactions, <laughs> etc. Anyway, um, like most people, um, I've enjoyed science fiction on and off since I was a kid. I wouldn't call myself a major science fiction fan. But then again, um, by the time I was five or six, um, I was given uh, my father's hard-bound, very wonderfully beat-up copies of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea and... Um, uh, either The Time Machine or another really great oh. classic. And I read them when I was very young. And in the early 50s, Walt Disney had done, uh, they really hocked the whole studio. It could have gone under mm -hmm. uh, when they made their first live action film, which was 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Mm -hmm. And I, I saw it as a very young child. And I still have watercolors and drawings that I did that afternoon when I went back to my grandparents' house and couldn't get the idea of this submarine in ancient times, the 1800s. Uh, <laughs> to cut to the chase, though, what I've observed is 
in the pantheon of science fiction fans, and they can be generalists or um, uh, people who you know are just major fans of the first two seasons of Star Trek or Star Wars fans or whatever, or the classics or Philip K. Dick or uh, any of the other great, great uh, science fiction writers. The ratio of taking this, the UFO-related subject seriously, which in some ways one would think they might be more predisposed to because they're into all of this futurism and science fiction, is about the same as the general populace. Uh, that they don't. They, they think you know UFOs are real in science fiction. But you really think this is serious? Which I find, in, in a Mr. Spock kind of way, fascinating. <laughs> um, and so I was curious as to how this brilliantly documented, very heartfelt, very professional documentary on one of the most shatteringly challenging, authentic, true UFO events and this major disappearance and all the uh, attendant drama upon it would resonate with a crowd that didn't really think much about UFOs and Mm -hmm. came to a science fiction film festival for science fiction films. I realized later on in the evening that we probably had, because it was a screening of Travis the Documentary, most of our audience were there because they are into this subject. I recognize many faces from, you know, uh, in the field. Mm -hmm. But there were people in there who, um, after the conference, came up to me and said it really did challenge my thinking. I, I found it very exciting. I had to remind myself that this was real. And I, I thought that was a great compliment for Jennifer and for Travis and for the film in general. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A testament also, the head of the film festival viewed the entire documentary, uh, remarked on it. And uh, I remember there was a documentary two years ago or That's perhaps right. last year. I was on a panel yeah. then as well. Um, and I think that was the very first yeah. Non-science fiction one they had ever had there, mm-hmm. and it also was a very lively discussion with good questions from the audience as well. James James Carmen's correct, film, the right. hidden, yeah. hand. hidden hand. hand, and then last year there was Maury Island. Okay, was here. Oh, I didn't okay. even realize. Yes. that. well, good for yes. them. And, and again, wonderful um, film. Dan, the director of the festival, I think he shows a lot of guts in um, beginning to integrate this material mm-hmm. into a world where there's more than enough enjoyment, satisfaction, excitement in reading the wonderful work of a writer at the level of Philip K. Dick, who many people have no idea the tremendous impact he's had on a culture and the number of his books and stories that have been made into films over the years and influenced other science fiction films over the years. Remarkable character. So I, I felt doubly proud because his name is one worthy of great respect, science fiction, Schmeyer's fiction, he's a great American writer, and he knew how to tell a hell of a story that will be retold in variations as long as there are people on Earth, I think. He's yeah. one of uh, our great, great writers, and he happened to work in science fiction. That was his genre. Mm-hmm. Dan actually shared something interesting with me last night. He's the director of the Philip K. Dick Festival. He said that uh, somewhere uh, in the Philip K. Dick literature, or maybe it was an interview that was done, uh, Philip admitted that he believed he was communicated with, that he'd had his own sightings, and that he was being directed or communicated with by a higher intelligence. I wasn't aware of that. <laughs> and I wasn't aware of that either. I was profound I, it, to me. I said, really? Well, and that's, I think, one of the reasons why Dan was attracted to hosting films like this that are true stories, but, of course... The, the nature of the story leans towards the surreal or the science fiction. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I would bet you that anybody who is seriously into his work knows that wonderful story about him. And if so, here's an example of how a writer's experience um, in a very challenging realm can impact itself tremendously on popular culture. The actual... A film that I, I just include in my um, general favorite films, um, it's just fun from beginning to end, um, was um, Back to the Future, the mm-hmm. original film. It's just lovely. It's great fun. It's great science fiction. 
beautifully drawn characters, a great dramatic arc, uh, a lot of humor with the bathos. And the character of Michael J. Fox's father, who is, you know, when we, when we meet him originally, is just this loser, nerd, you know, uh, milk toast kind of guy. But when we go back to the future, and, um, well, when we go back to the past, and he and his son develop a relationship, there is that moment where Michael J. Fox panicked that his mother is going to fall in love with him <laughs> and that he'll never get home again and all that stuff. He does something which is literally lifted from, I think, the reality of, of this Philip K. Dick experience in a way. He gets into his father's bedroom at night, wears his radiation hat, puts his headset on his dad, <laughs> and blasts heavy metal at him. Yep. And, of course, it's hysterically funny, but at the end of the film, when we see how things really did work out, and we find out that his father is a tremendously popular science fiction writer, yeah. it happened because of a transcendent, life-changing experience. Yes, of course, it was staged, but it didn't matter. Yeah. The reality sunk in, and he went forward from there. You know, um, I, I, I wonder if Philip K. Dick either wrote about this at any place, and if we have any uh, Philip K. Dick fans in in your audience, if they'd let you know, because mm-hmm. it'd be really interesting to see whether or not that was recorded in an interview, or he ever wrote about it, or it was just something people know about him from anecdotes and what have you. Absolutely, we run into this all the time. We take Whitley Strieber, for instance, uh, the ebb and flow of what was his fiction writing and what was his nonfiction writing. Um, what inf- what chicken or egg? Let's be honest. Right. Um, well, I mean, bringing up you know the sort of that blurred line. Um, I wanted to share this with you guys because I don't know if you were aware. Uh, during the film, there was a couple in the audience who was having a very heated argument mid-film. Um, they were pretty audible, um, and. I could hear one of them arguing the validity of several of the loggers and some of the individuals in the film and the other one, um, just a back and forth, back and forth. Of course they're telling the truth. No, it's the, the, he's, he's with them on this, this, that, um, it got so heated that they eventually left the theater, um, because they were disrupting the people around them. Um, so I think it was a good thing that they did that. Um, this is an indicator that, Jennifer, you most definitely hit a nerve and started a conversation, even mid-film. Um, so we, I have to commend you on that. Thank you. Um, most of these conversations take place after the film, <laughs> during a panel. But you know you've done your job when it's mid-film. So I, um, I definitely had to bring that up. Thank you. I, I heard them. And yeah. I wondered what was going on. Oh, I didn't. Yeah. I thought, why are they talking through the film? And yeah. they were... Obviously annoying the people around. Like, <laughs> I was like 10 rows back, and yeah. I saw them leave, and I went, well, that's two we've lost. <laughs> what an offhand compliment. I thought, that's so interesting. Yes, I thought, oh, well, either they really hate it, or they have to be somewhere. Right. <laughs> or they're, yeah, exactly. Um, but again, a testament to the film. Um, both of you have spent countless hours with Travis. Uh, I've met him on two occasions, and the guy, he's one of the nicest people you'll ever meet. He's a straight shooter, and he admits that uh, he wishes this event never happened to him. Uh, do you think that the abduction phenomenon or ufology in general, would it be set back if this incident never occurred? What are your personal thoughts on that? Again, this seems to be one of the preeminent cases that has that evidence that we strive for and we search for. Um, where do you think we would be as a community, as a field, um, had this case not happened? I think um, probably very much where we are right now. Mm-hmm. Um, things have a way of uh, filling space if something is missing. Yeah. Uh, perhaps there would have been that much more um, historic study and uh, debate and uh, media projects focused on the hills or on um, Debbie Jordan, the subject of Bud Hopkins' Intruders, or Linda Cortile. There's plenty of information and um, plenty of good casework out there. And if one major case, I think, were displaced, 
it would hardly hardly put a hole in the field. Ranks would simply close, and people would argue about or argue for other case materials, other evidences, etc. But who knows? Um, again, it's it's all what if stuff, isn't it? Um, I think the fact that it did happen, and that like it or not, Travis was thrust into not a national but an international spotlight. Whatever his reflections on it now, he has been of tremendous value as a rational representative of what for most people is impossible, crazy, science fiction, uh, a fabrication. The mantra there for me, and it's a skeptic's mantra, is it can't be, therefore it isn't, therefore it's something else. And the job that I've chosen in life is to explain to you, you poor deluded person who actually believes this nonsense, what it is in the real world that you were misunderstanding. Mm. Uh, now, whether or not that person actually believes that pose or, you know, they've got ulterior motives of some sort, um, Travis Walton is very difficult to take down. He literally radiates a certain integrity. Um, I saw him speak for the first time more than 25 years ago. It was at a conference in North Haven, Connecticut that Larry and I were speaking at during the period of time we were working on Left at Eastgate. Uh, we both had tremendous admiration for this guy, but we're both a little bit starstruck at the same time. Concurrent with that, watching him on stage, it was there was no question in my mind that he was not only not enjoying the process of communicating with an audience from a stage, which is something I do enjoy, even when you're dealing with loaded material, but that he was there for a very different reason. Uh, he was there because he felt it was his responsibility to be there. Um, the other thing about Travis, which I try always to remember, is from the get-go, it's not like this arced up over a period of time. He walked into an absolute international storm of controversy, yeah. dehydrated, in shock, hadn't eaten in five days, completely, um, um, as he said, um, borderline catatonic at first. And he could have tried, he could have become a recluse. He could have, you know, just gone off and been a mountain man or something. Over the several decades he's been a lecturer, he has become one of the most articulate spokespeople we've ever had yeah. for unusual stuff happening to regular people. Um, and I get the sense, and I mean this in a way with no um, negative or positive value added, it's simply a fact he is always overwhelmed by requests from people. Um, it's a problem. Uh, I don't know anybody who is or will ever be more behind in their emails. There's thousands behind. Mm -hmm. He can never keep up with it. I think he, he walks around with a certain sense of, I, I wish I could keep up with all this stuff. And it still happens with him. I mean, um, bless his heart, he is a hard guy to get hold of and confirm. And I think it's deeply conditioned going back 40 years now of people wanting a piece of him. And that's another interesting thing to observe. He's a very generous person. Yes. I've rarely seen speakers who, when there isn't a time constraint at the end of a program, will not just take questions from the audience, but repeatedly, and we've done quite a number of, of uh, appearances together since the film came out with and without Jennifer, he will answer every single question. Every single question. Until there is no questions left in that audience. Mm -hmm. Then he will for the countless number of time, take photographs with anybody who wants to take pictures, sign anything. Um, he will inscribe things in ways that I find thoughtful, poignant, uh, fun, um, and treat everybody as an individual with respect, uh, whether they're you know a senior citizen or a kid or what have you. Um, that's really worthy of respect in itself. Right. I, I don't know if he's ever going to get out from under this sort of psychic load. It may just be part of his destiny. 
I'll tell you what, though, um, a year or so ago, we were sitting and talking, one thing leading to another, and I asked him, we can never know the answers to these questions for sure, had this never happened, how he thought his life might have gone. Mm -hmm. He thought about it for a minute, and he said, you know, um, I had a year of college, I was 22 years old, I think I might have gone back to school and become a um, pharmacist. Mm -hmm. What? (laughs) Well, you know, it's a profession. It's, um, you know, good living. Uh, my intentions were to stay in my hometown. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, how about that? But he would have been a very good pharmacist. Yeah. And um, I'm glad in a way that fate has given him to this extraordinary community yeah. uh, where I see us all in our own ways finding our path to be educators in a manner that maybe for some of us is unconscious, for others of us you remember that special teacher or that amazing lecture or that extraordinary film or that book you can never forget. And whether you're answering a question or giving a full talk, knowing you have to walk a line, something that Jennifer had to consider every day working on this project, where for everything in the film that was educational, and fact-specific, it has to be done in a manner, and I use the word with great respect, that is entertaining and has a certain dynamic that will carry an average viewer from point to point. Uh, It seems every year, overall, people have lower and lower attention spans. And like you said, there is this plague of people reading less and less, for pleasure, or possibly even for business, and listening and watching more and more. It's not bad and good, but, well, it is in a way. Um, Reading, especially for book lovers like us, is integral to our our lives. And, well, I mean, I could go on, but that's that's the basic thought. Um, I'm not glad this happened to him. You know, I, I would have much preferred in an abstract, kind of reality that I never heard of him, that there was somebody somewhere else in the United States living a life where they were enjoying themselves and not feeling terribly pressured and, you know, playing with their kids and being a good part of their community. Right. But the fact that things happened the way they did. Yeah. Um, I remember many years ago sitting with my mother um, and her saying, her reflecting on the impact that my sister and my UFO sighting as kids had on us. Um, And just wistfully, almost thinking out loud to me, I wonder if your lives would have turned out tremendously different if you'd been playing in the backyard rather than the front yard. (laughs) And I, I thought about that on and off for years, I think because Helen had had experiences and that was one of them. Um, they would have found her in the backyard <laughs> just <laughs> fine. And at the same time, I can see how both of our lives would have been very different had this subject not entered into it. Right. I probably, I overwhelmingly would have stayed on my track as a uh, uh, gallery painter and a professional photographer. I might have ended up, um, you know, w- with a PhD in, in fine art and teaching in, at a university or something. My sister could have easily become um, um, a um, oceanographic biologist or something, mm-hmm. or a mathematician, or a poet. Uh, but that's not the way it is. And Travis Walton is Travis Walton because he was at the wrong place at the exact right moment for something to happen to change him and the lives of everyone he was with and everyone who knows them and everyone to a degree who knows about what happened to them. Exactly. I mean, Jennifer, you mentioned in the panel um, very eloquently that he was, he did not have the luxury of not coming forward about (laughs) his experience. Five days, it became international headlines when the UFO story became a part of it. Um, So what I think the film does... The UFO story coupled... With, with the potential of murder exactly. and hiding the body. Exactly. And then after that, it became a hoax. Right. <laughs> so These that was another did, spin. Yeah. Where's exactly. the cabin in the woods that he was really staying exactly. at, please? Um, 
so what I think the film did, and I heard this word specifically um, afterwards from someone, um, not only was the production quality good, but it had heart. And I think what you did... Well said. What you did best in the later half of the film is show Travis as a person uh, disconnected from this incident. Uh, We do not identify ourselves because of our one experience in our lives, whether it's a sighting, a paranormal, a trauma, a anything. There is much more to human beings than that. And I think you focused on that and show Travis as a person and that although this may have shaped him into the person he is, there is more to this man than that. And the title aptly being Travis uh, shows us that. Um, so, yeah, oh, I think that was... Thanks. Um, I, I will give credit to, uh, to Zachary Weil and to Adam Stein, who worked with me as, as editors on this, really guiding me towards that kind of closure. Mm-hmm. Um, and to making it as much, and even maybe more so, a human interest story about how this man and the logging crew that he was with dealt with this over their lives. Yes. And in actuality, I think Travis may not have actually written his book if he wasn't so angry hmm. about being accused of hoaxing Yes, this. good point. When Travis first came back, he really wasn't involved in the media or answering the media. It was his brother, Dwayne, mm-hmm. and the crew boss, Mike Rogers. Yes. Right. Mike was the one who really dealt with most of the communications as well with um, Philip Glass because Mike was accused of, coming up with this elaborate scheme to get out of a logging you know, contract with the Forestry Service, which wasn't true, because if you didn't finish your contract, you didn't get paid. You didn't have to get out of it. Either you finished it by a certain deadline and you got your payment, and if you didn't and you missed that deadline, you, didn't, you had to submit a new contract. It's just the way they worked. So I think this whole story actually ended up coming more to light with the details that it came to light with, with Travis finally writing his book. And uh, Mike Rogers was intimately involved in those in, in the early part of writing the book because Mike and Travis were best friends. So Travis was right there at Mike's side with all these letters and affidavits that had to be uh, you know, filed to prove that they were telling the truth. So if the story hadn't been debunked and attacked as much as it was, the book may never have been written. The Hollywood film may never have been produced, and I may not be here having made this documentary. So mm. the effort to squelch the story and the anger that it created from within that logging crew is what eventually led to us knowing about it in the detail we do today. Yeah, and still ongoing. Travis is still searching for answers in his yes. own experience. Uh, that being said, um, for the future, what's next for the film? Well, my goal is to try to uh, find a distributor uh, who's interested in taking the film to some networks. I think it has network potential. I'm in the process of doing some re-edits, doing a a 43-minute re-edit so that I can sell it as a one-hour television Mm -hmm. episode. And then also maybe honing it even a little more tightly. I have new interviews to add in with Mike Rogers. We have some live footage of Philip Class. Uh, very interestingly, mm. calling um, uh, uh, calling Mike a uh, uh, goddamn liar oh, on, naturally. On, on national television, on Larry King Live, which is wonderful. Uh, we have Don uh, Walton, Travis's older brother, and I have Deputy Ellison and Leo Sprinkle to yeah. edit in. I was able to get these additional interviews. So I am reworking the film. As you saw last night, we showed a film with some CGI in it. I am making a new piece that will be exclusive for television and for um, possibly some art houses or, mm-hmm. or what they call four-wall distribution. Yeah. I'd like to distribute it in a major way. As a business person, it's logical that I want to be able to repay myself uh, with the outlay and the investment I put into making the film mm-hmm. so that I can make other films in the future. So my goal is to uh, market the film uh, nationally, internationally, and uh, then eventually release this newer exclusive version 
on um, probably Vimeo, Netflix, Apple TV, yeah. Hulu, and, and DVD as well. If that will still be around in six or seven <laughs> years, we'll see. Yeah. But uh, sure my goal is that more and more people around the world know this story because I think it is a human interest story, and it explains what it's like, what you go through when you have this experience. And over 50% of the world's population has seen something. So I think there's a market for it. I agree. And, you know, the percentage probably is going up and up. It's that challenge we always have of people reporting it. Um, so where can we find out more about the film? Uh, there's a great website, uh, TravisWaltonTheMovie.com. You can go there. There's also uh, the trailer is on YouTube. You can you know, Google TravisWaltonTheMovie.com. You'll get right to the trailer. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of inside and background information at the website, photos of our shooting, um, and I'm looking for testimonials as well from, from anyone. Of course, I'm looking for important people. I've just gotten a wonderful one from uh, Paul Hellier, uh, the former uh, Defense Minister of Canada, oh, wow. who has seen the film and really liked it and contacted me. So I'm, I'm collecting testimonials. I have a great testimonial uh, from Edgar Mitchell as well, which is really wonderful. Oh, fantastic. And, uh, Mr. Mitchell's been a friend for many years. So I'm trying to uh, use the social media as best I can. Uh, to get the word out there, and I'm really interested in the public communicating with me and letting me know what they think. I'm interested in doing screenings. Uh, if I can, I'll drive anywhere and, you know, 50, 60, 100-mile radius of Philadelphia. I'll do a screening. I'll show up and talk. Um, uh, so I'm just hoping to continue to get the word out there because it helps Travis, uh, and it hel helps expand our awareness as, uh, as human beings. Uh, I think it begins to open our consciousness to the seriousness and the reality. Well, I mean, what we know now, how many planets are potentially life-inhabiting planets that Growing have suns with, with you know, planets orbiting them. As we begin to grow more and more in our awareness, I think this film will only help. And what's that website again? Uh, TravisWaltonTheMovie.com Well, we look forward to hearing the progress of the film. And we're just so happy to see the UFO field thriving with credible, well-made films like this. So thank you, both of you, for inviting me last night, uh, for being with us here today. And again, we look forward to what comes next for, for the film and for Travis Walton himself as he continues to search for answers. So thank you so much for joining us on thank UFO you. Mod Pod. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you for doing what you're doing. Oh, my absolute pleasure. <laughs> If you've missed any of our previous shows, you can always find episodes on RoguePlanet.tv. That's our website. But UFO Mod Pod is also on iTunes and Stitcher, so you can find us there too. Thanks again to Jen Stein and Peter Robbins for hanging out with us today. As they mentioned, you can learn more about their film at TravisWaltonTheMovie.com. As always, if you have a UFO sighting or story you want to share with us, We'd love to hear it. Use the contact form on our website, RoguePlanet.tv, and send those to us. And again, the show's on iTunes. Subscribe and leave a stellar review if you enjoyed the show. Thanks again for joining us today. I'm Jason McClellan. I'm Ryan Sprague. And I'm Marie Ellsbury. In honor of Travis Walton and in the words of Theodore Roosevelt, keep your eyes on the stars and your feet on the ground.